Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series walking through the book of Deuteronomy, and here the team will be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 13. We have a big couple of weeks coming up for us here at Theopolis. Next Monday and Tuesday, July 17th and 18th, we have our Theopolitan Ministry Conference. We look forward to seeing many of you there as we hear many lectures on the topic of love from different philosophical and biblical angles. There's still time to register for that conference, and there's a link to do so in the show notes. After that, we will start a week and a half with our Theopolis Fellows. We have 15 fellows coming in from all over the country for a week and a half of biblical and theological and liturgical training. I have a link in the show notes as well to see what that program is all about and what it looks like to be a student. This month, we are celebrating 10 years of our work, and one way that we are doing that is offering a discount on your first month of the Theopolis app. So if you head to the link in the show notes and sign up, use that code down there, Theopolis10, and you'll receive your first month for just $1, and we hope that you enjoy all of the content that is there. We hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James B. John discussing Deuteronomy 13. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James Bijan, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background uh, recording, and he'll be editing and get er- getting everything ready for you. Uh, thanks for listening. We are in the middle of a series of podcasts on the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we have gotten through Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we'll be tackling chapter 13 today. Uh, chapter 12 starts a section that stretches uh, to the... Uh, uh, on to chapter 26. Uh, it's covering basically commandments two through 10 of the 10 words. Uh, and what we're in right now in, in looking at chapter 13 today is the second part of the second word section. Uh, and we can see that in a couple of ways. Uh, we can see that uh, kind of in general, uh, in just in the ordering of the, of, of the, uh, of the book of Deuteronomy, some, some of the uh, alignment between sections of Deuteronomy and one of the 10 words is very, very clear and obvious. Others are more obscure. Uh, but uh, when we when we see the pattern, then we begin to think, oh, we, we have a beat on what's going on. And that's partly, uh, partly what we're thinking of here with uh, chapter 13. Chapter 13 does include language that's drawn from the first word. Uh, there's an exhortation to go after other gods to serve them. Uh, that's a, that would be a violation of the first word. But there's also language that's borrowed from the second word. The second word is the prohibition of images uh, and concludes with a warning that the Lord is a jealous God who visits the iniquity upon the uh, third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but shows mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And the language of loving Yahweh, which is found in the second word, also was found in Deuteronomy uh, 6, the Shema Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God. That language is repeated here in chapter 13. The Lord is testing Israel by sending a prophet or a dreamer of dreams to see if they will love him. So that's language that comes from the second word. Uh, also, the, although the, the wording is different, the second word refers to the Lord's mercy to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. That's chesed in uh, the second word. Uh, but here at the end of chapter 13, we have this accent on uh, the mercy that the Lord shows, the compassion that he shows. If Israel will 
be faithful and expel those who are enticing them to idolatry, then the Lord will have mercy on them and he will multiply them and he will bless them. On the other side, there's a second word refers to the jealousy of the Lord, his hostility to any rivals. Uh, and although the word jealousy is not used in chapter 13, we have the ang- the idea of the, the Lord's anger, his burning anger against the sons of Baalia who uh, tempt a city to abandon the Lord and serve other gods. So there's language that's brought up in chapter 13 that's borrowed from the second word. But we also have a, a pretty tight connection between chapters 12 and chapter 13. Chapter 12 uh, ends, it's mainly about the central sanctuary, the place that the Lord is going to choose. That's the place where Israel is going to bring all their offerings and their sacrifices and have all their festivals. Uh, And uh, chapter 12 details some of the consequences of that for Israelites who are living at a distance from the sanctuary. Uh, Do they have to go all the way to the sanctuary in order to slaughter meat as they would have done under the rules that uh, that were in force in the wilderness? And the answer is no, they can slaughter meat in their own gates at their own homes. Uh, and then it can eat meat at a distance from the sanctuary. So that's the main content of chapter 12. But then in verse 29, we have a kind of shift of emphasis. Uh, when the Lord your God cuts off all the nations, then guard yourself, lest you be ensnared to follow them, uh, verse 30 says of chapter 12. Uh, and this is a this is a temptation that doesn't arise from someone else, but arises from Israel's own curiosity. How do these nations serve their gods that I might do likewise? So the uh, that's that's anticipating the concerns of chapter 13, even though it's uh, also linked up with the concerns of chapter 12 in various ways. Um, But it's linked up with the concerns of chapter 13, because all of the scenarios that are given in chapter 13 have to do with temptations to serve other gods. Uh, At the end of chapter 12, we have the temptation coming from Israel's own curiosity. Chapter 13, we have three cases. If you have a prophet or dreamer of dreams who entices you to serve other gods, uh, then this is the way you should do, deal with that. If you have an, uh, a family member or an intimate friend who entices to serve other gods and he does it secretly, then there's instructions about how to deal with that. And then there's if there are sons of Baal, wicked men, who entice an entire city to abandon Yahweh and to serve other gods, then this is how you deal with them. Those are the three scenarios in chapter 13, but they're anticipated uh, in chapter 12. One of the general lessons we can get from this, and I think this would apply to uh, the church in a different register. One of the general lessons we can draw from the scenarios in chapter 13 is that the conquest of the land is not completed when Israel occupies the land and settles in it. They go in to purge idolatry from the land. Uh, they, uh, As chapter 12 says, they tear down the altars, they smash the sacred pillars, they burn the asherim, they cut down the engraved images, they obliterate the name of false gods from the land so that Yahweh can put his name in the land. Uh, but that's a continuing project. And it's not just the Canaanites who need to be dealt with and purged. Uh, over time, there will be Israelites who become Canaanites, and they need to be dealt with and purged. And the, the land needs to undergo a continuous purgation and a continuous purification. It's not over once for all. There's a kind of once for all entry into the land. Uh, but then uh, the, purgi- the purging has to go on permanently. And I think the application of the New Covenant, uh, uh, these these scenarios apply, first of all, in the church. And if there's uh, anyone in the church is enticing to idolatry, or if there's a congregation of the church, we could say in the modern context, the, a denomination of the church that is in, has gone after other gods, uh, then 
they must be purged and they must be dealt with. So the, the purging of the land, the purging of the church is not something that happens once for all. We are a holy people. We confess that the church is holy and Catholic and apostolic, and yet that holiness is maintained uh, by church discipline. It's maintained by purging those who uh, purge the wicked man from among you. That's language that Paul borrows from passages like this and applies it to church discipline. Uh, the church needs to be, uh, needs like Israel, it needs to be undergoing this c- continuous purification and sanctification uh, and in order to uh, may, be, continue in the good graces of God. So maybe a question just to kick off that I've been wondering about. What do you guys take to be the big appeal of idolatry? So kind of here there's, it seems, corrupting influence from within and there's perhaps a sign or wonder and then on the back of it someone says, let us go after other gods. Now, I mean, if I read through a list of sins and vices so on in the new testament i can understand and you know as a fallen person i can resonate with the appeal to most of them the the kind of appeal of idolatry to an israelite here is is yeah it's less clear to me as i i'd be keen to know what you think about it just because it's it's kind of the temptation that underlies this whole this whole chapter Uh, might it be related to the prophet being described as a dreamer of dreams so that he has here he puts before people a dream of something better of greener pastures if you will of uh of more productivity and fertility in land or whatever it might be but uh so that there's this dream of something better and that draws people away at least something like that i think one aspect of it that needs to be considered is how often dreamers and these false prophets, the um, those tempting to idolatry, are people very close. And the challenge is often family and um, friendship ties, uh, particularly in the second instance here, the brother or the son of your mother, the son or daughter or wife you embrace or your friend, these people who are really close. Likewise, in the context of their life within the land. It's often the challenge of intermarrying um, is that which will bring with it idolatry. If they're intermarrying with the people of the nations, if they want to form treaties and um, have some sort of covenant with the peoples of the nations, they will often do so in the context of swearing some sort of fealty to their gods or sacrificing. And so the temptation to idolatry is often not a direct temptation to the idolatry itself. It's a temptation to the ties that either um, advance the idolatry or that can be formed through the idolatry. And that, I think, has always been the case and is the situation in our day and age as well, where views that would not, on the surface of them themselves, have appeal, become very appealing when there are close friends of ours, family members who are um, caught up with certain ideologies surrounding sexuality or whatever. Or on the other hand, um, your job or um, some situation that you have um, the possibility of gaining advance in if you would only bow the knee to whatever the reigning ideology is and fly that flag or um, use those pronouns 
that is often the temptation of idolatry, not just a, a direct one. Yeah, that's really helpful, Alistair. And uh, in addition to the the intimate contact that uh, you mentioned from the second scenario in chapter thirteen, I think we can kind of tease out some possible answers to James' question from the way that these temptations are proposed. Again, at the end of chapter twelve, the question is: How do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? Which sounds like a question that's arriving arising from curiosity and kind of a mimetic desire. Uh, I want to be like them. I mean, why does Israel seek a king? In 1 Samuel 8, they seek a king because they want to be like the nations that surround them, which also have a king. So I think there's a a curiosity and an aspect of uh, uh, imitation that's going on here. The other thing that I I wasn't sure what to do with uh, just in terms of the grammar in verse 2, this is the prophet or the wonder worker uh, speaking. Of course, the fact that the prophet does wonders and he actually the sign actually comes to pass, that could that's also an, an attraction. But then the the temptation is phrased this way: let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. And of course, in my in my Bible, the phrase uh, clause whom you have not known is in parentheses. But the question I have grammatically is: is that are these the words of the, the prophet, or are these words that are inserted by Moses? as he's saying it. And if we take it the first way, that these are the words of the prophets, and maybe we're looking at a kind of appeal of novelty. You know, you've uh, you've been serving Yahweh for a long time, but uh, now there are these other, these other innovative ways of worshiping that we haven't ever tried out. So you haven't known these, and your fathers haven't known these. It may be that, that the novelty of it is, is part of the appeal. I guess the other thing this puts me in mind of is uh, Calvin's comment that uh, the human heart is just a factory of idols. So at some point, we're just going to have to say there's something beyond a rational explanation. Idolatry is inherently irrational because it's preferring nothing <laughs> to uh, a God who is all in all. Uh, and that's just, that makes no sense. And yet we do it all the time. Sorry, Peter, I dropped out just slightly then. Can you just repeat your two ways of understanding that um, phrase, the which you have not known again? Yeah, the question I have is whether that uh, whom you have not known in verse 2 is part of the quotation from the prophet so that his, uh, he's appealing to these other gods as gods that they don't know. So there's a, there's a kind of esoteric appeal and a, a, an appeal of novelty. These hidden gods, you don't have known these hidden gods. Your fathers didn't know these hidden gods. Let's go serve them, these new, newly discovered gods. That's, that's one way to read it. The other way to read it is that whom you have not known is an insertion of, uh, from Moses, uh, identifying these other gods as gods that Israel hasn't known. It seems like it seemed to me like the Hebrew grammatically makes that part of what is said by the prophet, but um, I'd, uh, that I'd have to be checked by somebody like James who actually knows Hebrew grammar. Yeah, I was just thinking I'd like someone else to check it out, actually. <laughs> just thinking about this idea of um, being enticed to sin, and I think this, um, or enticed into idolatry, I think this fits in um, quite well with all of you have said about it. That um, I've been going through Ahab's um, story a bit recently, and that idea of enticement is quite um, quite key there, the, the same verb that appears here is used to describe if i recall how um 
how Jezebel entices Ahab and how Ahab then entices um, Jehoshaphat to go to battle with him. And finally, how God then sort of entices people away from um, Jehoshaphat so that he, or perhaps it's not even enticed there, perhaps the sense of it is more sort of draws people away. But certainly in two of those cases, that's in the context of, of bonds and kind of close connections you know ahab and Jehoshaphat have, have made this alliance um un, unwisely i guess on, on judah's behalf and uh likewise ahab and jezebel have this this marital alliance and it, it's in that context that this enticement seems to take hold and then uh have its its force and so it, it does seem to be very much in in the perhaps in the pressure of just getting along you're, you're sort of um drawn into making these concessions just for the sake of uh, convenience of them. Yeah, I don't know if you were alluding to the phrase in verse 3, James, but um, the Lord uh, entices, draws Ahab out through his lying prophets, and that the Lord's involvement in this scenario of the prophet uh, is uh, indicated, verse 3, you shall not hear, so uh, that's shama, the verb that's used for the shama, obviously, and you have that as a refrain throughout the throughout the chapter. Hero Israel is the primary command to Israel in chapter six, but then here Yahweh has as its correlate: do not hear these other gods or these enticements to other gods. So do not hear the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for Yahweh is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and soul. So it, uh, I take that to mean that Yahweh is permitting sending. Uh, creating a scenario where a prophet is uh, uh, not only speaking, but is able to perform this sign. And that's a way, like the manna, the manna was a food test in the wilderness. Uh, this is a word test uh, if uh, to see if Israel is going to love the Lord with all their heart and soul and cling to him. Uh, so yeah, he's involved in some way in this enticement, not enticing them to sin, but testing them with this prophet. Piggybacking on what you guys have said, I think the fact that we don't really have uh, an explicit explanation of the allure of idolatry probably means it can come from a number of it, it, it can have a number of different motivations. You, you can be motivated this not you know novelty, whatever. I mean, back remember in chapter twelve when the Lord commanded that they destroy and dash down the pillars and the asherim uh that also reminds us that these are fertility cults and so they're looking for some kind of material benefit and you see you see the cities you see the wealth of all of these gentile canaanite you know settlements and you think and you're and you're tempted to think that if if you follow their gods if you sacrifice like they do then you'll get all of this. I mean, there may be some of this also just at the end of this chapter, when if a city uh, gets entangled in this and falls under the, uh, uh, you know, the um, this temptation to, uh, you know, uh, other gods, all of a sudden you're supposed to destroy it. It's it's Kareem. It's devoted to destruction. Uh, and then in verse seventeen. Uh, none of the devoted things shall stick to your hand uh, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger so that you you should not 
even after you destroy these cities, you don't get to keep the spoil. Uh, you don't get to have it for yourself. So that, um, and that seems to me just to strengthen the idea that there's a material kind of uh, motivation here to get what they have. Also, remember, as you go through scriptures, you get into the kingdom period, you get into wisdom literature, and this is this is a big part of it also, is reflection on why it is that the wicked prosper and uh, and the danger of, of misinterpreting that as God's blessing. And the, the other thing about that verse 17 that I noticed in trying to work through the structure, the literary structure of this chapter, I noticed that uh, the same verb, um, dabach, uh, stick to your hand, is used also in verse 4. Uh, and there, there seems to be a contrast here. You don't want the devoted things, the kareem, to stick to your hand. But what you do want to, to stick to you is verse 4. You shall walk after Yahweh your God, fear him, keep his commandments, and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast, stick to him. Uh, so sticking to Yahweh rather than sticking to what appear to be the benefits of idolatry, uh, those two those two things seem to be connected. Yeah, that's good, and that's that is the verb in uh, Genesis two when uh, Genesis two twenty four, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall stick to his wife or cleave to his wife. So there's uh, verse four has a kind of marital overtone at least in that verb and maybe in in the whole list of different things. As bride, Israel is supposed to serve uh, Yahweh, supposed to listen to his voice, supposed to keep his commandments, supposed to follow him, and so on. Uh, and that would mean that the hanging on to the to the banned items, the those things sticking to your hand is a kind of infidelity as well as an idolatry. It is very striking, isn't it? Just building on some of these thoughts, that it is the Lord who um, via, in verse 4, via the words of that prophet is testing you and this does seem to be reflected just in the way the biblical um narrative describes certain actions so i mean it's the um lord i think who in uh one chronicles incites david to number um israel and that actually again if i recall it's the same um uh, incite or entice that occurs in verse seven of this chapter is it's the lord who does it there but obviously elsewhere it's um it, it's satan um who who does it or perhaps i've got it the other, the other way around perhaps it's satan in um uh one chronicles can't remember there um but either way there, there is this um uh as there is in job uh, again using the same verb there, there is this kind of uh for primary and secondary cause language that scripture can use of different um of different in respect of different verbs i suppose so just as it can be said that um satan did something so it can be said that the lord did something um and and so um you can talk about the kind of primary or secondary cause um of what's going on and it, it's just very striking that the um the lord is actually um behind these false prophets in some at least indirect sense i mean going back to the uh example of ahab ahab didn't accumulate all these 
false prophets around him because they were entirely useless. Um, people didn't hire Balaam out because he was powerless. You know, th- there was some benefit to these um, people. And, and in, in some senses, we, we've got to attribute that kind of ultimately to the, the Lord empowering these people for certain um, purposes um, of his own. Yeah, James, you mentioned Job. Um, surely everybody knows this, is that uh, the, Yahweh was the one who brought Job to Satan's attention. Twice at least that's mentioned, maybe three times in the introductory chapters. But then, fascinating enough, of course, uh, Satan is permitted to go out and do all and, and, and perpetrate all these atrocities and uh, adversities and troubles and sickness and and uh, illness on Job, but then Job never never really responds to Satan. He's he understands that it's the Lord who's done all this, and his beef, his complaint, is with the Lord. Um, and the false prophets are his advisors, his counselors who come to him, uh, and he has to resist them. But but he sticks with the Lord the whole time, and of course. That is um, that is commended at the end. We can maybe think of a number of instances where there is this um, testing of people um, through false words. First um, Kings thirteen with the man of God from Judah would be a good example, and he ends up being killed by a lion for believing a false prophecy. Um, in Second Thessalonians two. We're told, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And there there's a desire to believe what is false, which is also seen in the instance with Micaiah and um, the prophets of Ahab, where the Lord in this great um, throne scene um, asks the hosts of heaven who's going to deceive, entice Ahab. And Ahab is then told that this scene has occurred and that a lying prophet has, a lying spirit has been sent into his prophets. And he knows that Micaiah is one who tells the truth. And yet his desire is to believe the falsehood. And as a result, he is led to um, defeat. And in these cases, there is this um, underlying, um, the power of the deception is found in the desire to believe the lie more than a genuinely being deceived and not knowing what is the case. It's not a, the Lord actually tells quite clearly what is the truth and the people know, and yet, nonetheless, they want to follow their own hearts and that leads them to accept the lie over the truth. And that testing is a revealing not of their ability to um, unravel riddles and confusing communications from the Lord, but just to see where their hearts are. Will they follow the truth even when it goes against their hearts? And there is a tempting lie um, placed in front of them. Yeah, I mean, in that case, the the prophets of Ahab are saying something like, I don't I don't have the exact translation in my head, but something like this. Um, uh, the Lord shall give it into the king's hand, uh, which is kind of unfalsif- unfalsifiable if you have two kings that are fighting over something. Uh one of them is going to win and it is going to be given into their hand. So the, there's a kind of self-protective thing. And then, yeah, uh, there's a Ahab, here's what, he, here's what he wants in that very ambiguous kind of message. Uh, I wanted to highlight uh, what's something that's obvious in the text of uh, Deuteronomy 13 and 
uh, highly offensive. One of the articles I read was trying to make sense of what he called an abhorrent text. And that is the fact that you have, uh, in each case, each of the three scenarios that are listed, uh, the false prophet is put to death. Uh, the family member or close friend uh, is stoned. The city that is apostate and goes away from the Lord is utterly destroyed. It, it comes under the ban, as Jeff has pointed out. You purge the wicked man from among you, verse 5. Uh, and Israel is commanded to be intolerant toward this kind of religious diversity. They're not supposed to allow within their ranks, uh, within within the land, uh, people who entice to serve and worship other gods. Um, a couple a couple of questions come up to my mind about that. One is, um, practically, how, how did this work out? Uh, we know that there are strangers in the land. At least the Lord encourages Israel to treat strangers with kindness and with love. Love the stranger is a command in Deuteronomy. Uh, so what happened to them? Are they all converts to worship of Yahweh? Are they worshiping their own gods? Are they allowed to worship their own gods? Do they come under these prohibitions and are they expelled from the land? Does that is that what it means to purge the wicked man from among you? And secondly, then a question about the new covenant. I said at the beginning of the episode that I think this applies, first of all, within the church. That's the way Paul applies this idea of purgation in 1 Corinthians 5. A man who has his uh, father's wife, and he's supposed to be cast over to Satan, and so you shall purge the wicked man from among you. That's how First First Corinthians five ends. So he's applying the he's applying the language of capital punishment to um, to uh, the church and its expulsion from the church. So, but but uh, do these texts uh, does Deuteronomy thirteen have any application to a society that's trying to operate according to Christian? norms. Uh, uh, what happens if you do have something like a Christian nation emerge? Um, what should they try to apply? What do they do with the texts like Deuteronomy 13? I'll leave those as questions, uh, raise those as questions. Well, I mean, one general thought I have, I guess, which isn't a, a direct answer, but um, is that the law does seem to make provision at various times for things to be okay for strangers to do, but not for native-born Israelites to do. So um, if I recall rightly, there are certain pieces of meat that you come across, you know, if you, if you if it hasn't been killed in the appropriate way, then you, you're not allowed to eat that as an Israelite, but it can be given to a stranger, like to a, a foreigner who's sojourning in the midst of Israel. And so it, it, it does seem that you... the Law, at least in some sense, in some circumstances, does have this twofold um, uh, aspect to it. it. Doesn't just treat everyone as equal, and it does. Then the sort of second thing I was going to say was that the issue here is obviously in enticement, isn't it? And so, like, so not just someone worshiping uh, an idol kind of inside his own house that I guess no one would ever know whether he was doing it or not. Um, but the issue here is someone enticing first his family and then others to go after um, false gods. So I wonder if that, uh, if those two things are at least relevant to the question. The distinction between public um, worship and private might be um, a way of fleshing out what James was saying, that 
what we're dealing with in the case of the brother who's enticing is uh, um, some move towards a more public shared form of religious expression. Likewise with the city that goes after other gods. And the worship of these gods was a more um, public sort of thing. This is not just in the privacy of your own home. Um, these are situations where a group of people have apostatized. And so I do think that is significant. On the other hand, we have situations like Micah in Judges where the idolatry of a single person, which then becomes institutionalized on a family level with his own personal Levite, then can become something that spreads to the Danites and um, lead to them apostatizing as a group. So I'm not sure that we can tidally demarcate um, private and public. Uh, this is not going to answer your question, Peter, entirely, but I do remember, and I just looked for it on my shelf and couldn't find it, a um, book by Harold O.J. Brown called Heresies. And one of the first maybe introductory chapters, he talks about the how the early church dealt with heretics and heresies, um, and even up through the Reformation, medieval Reformation, uh, and acknowledging the uh, oftentimes uh, inappropriate ways and, uh, you know, went overboard. But at the same time, he said, we need to appreciate the fierceness of the early church in opposing these heresies because um, these were about, you know, eternal life, eternal destiny. These were, you know, you follow these heretical teachers and you're, you're in danger of, you know, eternal damnation. And uh, in, in these cultures, appropriately, they thought that was just as serious as threatening you know, physical death to somebody, um, and we're treated in 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 ways maybe that we as moderns won't treat those kinds of of heretics. But you have, we have to appreciate the fact that uh, if a heresy spread and developed and took root, that it would affect not, and not just individuals' eternal eternal uh, destiny, but also. Uh, it would affect all sorts of social, economic, political kinds of, of things in a culture. And I, I think uh, sometimes we forget this too. The, the foundations of our social order uh, in the West are are rooted in, you know, Christian theology, Trinitarian, uh, Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed kind of uh, confessions about God and man and history and life. And uh, you, you you undermine that or you switch that out for some other faith and you you turn on its head an entire culture. You, you send it in a different direction. Um, and I think um, that that's part of this is the, and of course we've talked about this before. The, the Canaanites go, the Canaanites, when the Israel comes in, they're, they're not just, you know, worshiping, God in a different way, you know, having a different order of service or something, uh, their entire culture has been uh, suffused with all of this awful stuff. And and that all has to be wiped away because the Lord wants to start something entirely new. 
Yeah, I think that's all helpful. Uh, uh, one of the things I was thinking of um, when I raised the question about how this worked out practically for Israel, uh, James's point about the the unequal permissions that are given to Israelites as opposed to uh, strangers in the land. I think that's that is a relevant point. Uh, and uh, Jim Jordan made uh, the argument, uh, at least uh, partly in Sabbath breaking of the death penalty, that essay, and I think he brought it up in other places too that uh, Israel. Israel's land was supposed to be a sanctuary for strangers. It was supposed to be a land where strangers could live and prosper and be cared for and treated with kindness and love. That's what Israel was required to do. And yet it was Yahweh's land. And so it's a sanctuary, but it has these standards. And uh, a stranger who's living in that land is has to acknowledge and submit to, uh, if to put it in the modern terms, the Yahwist system that's there. Uh, and the Sabbath breaking of the death penalty, he develops this in terms of uh, the Sabbath and the Sabbath being a unique time, a uniquely designated time for the worship of Yahweh. Uh, that's what he thinks is going on in the scenarios where the man is picking up sticks. It's not an issue about just normal everyday labor, but it's an issue about stoking up a fire. Uh, and on the, the Sabbath day, the Lord's fire on the altar is the fire that gets stoked up. That hearth fire gets stoked up. And anything that competes with that, uh, sacrifices to another god being stoked up on the Sabbath, are not permitted. But that doesn't—that's not the same as prohibiting all and, and suppressing all other forms of worship in the land. So uh, I think his his description of the land as a sanctuary uh, and uh, a, a sanctuary under Yahweh's under his uh, oversight and rule, uh, I think that's that's a basic that's a basic principle, and that leaves room for certain kinds of religious expressions that are not allowed to take over and not allowed to seduce Israelites away from Yahweh, but are permitted within the land. The other thing I was going to say in response to Jeff's comment is the, I think it's it's become even more evident. We I learned this from Cornelius Van Til 40 years ago, but it, it, it's, it's, it's fun to see Cornelius Van Til worked out on in the daily headlines, that there is no neutrality and there is no such thing as a completely tolerant political system or a completely tolerant and open-minded philosophical system. That just doesn't exist. We have commitments. Uh, we have presuppositions, to use uh, Van Til's language. And we have basic commitments, and, and societies have basic commitments, and they're intolerant of challenges to those basic commitments. I mean, we're seeing that constantly these days. Um, no longer intolerance on the part of Christians for uh, anti-Christian uh, conduct and anti-Christian Propaganda, but but the opposite, the intolerance of anti-Christian and anti-Christian establishment for strong expressions of Christianity. So uh, that that no neutrality principle, I think, is also relevant to the discussion. Uh, is it also relevant to remember that uh, even though this death penalty is commanded here, that all death penalties except for murder can be mitigated? Um, and I, you mentioned. Uh, Jim's Jim, James Jordan's essay on Sabbath breaking, but there's also his essay on death penalty in the Mosaic Law, which uh, is is fascinating because it uh, it is a critique of theonomy, um, and, and especially noting that uh, that any any death penalty, and what are there 13, 15, something like that in the Hebrew Scriptures, um, can be mitigated, can be ransomed, except for uh, murder. And that's uh, and I think it's numbers thirty-five makes that pretty clear. So that 
here, I mean, what seems like um, an absolute sanction against the prophet, um, depending on how this is adjudicated in uh, an Israelite court of priests and elders, uh, might be mitigated in some way. Uh, I mean, I, is that correct? Do you, you think that's right? Yeah, I, I agree with the general principle. I agree with the, your point that uh, from Jim that it, that murder is 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 a the death penalty is demanded for murder, life for life. But then there are, uh, especially if you have crimes that are involved victims, then you have some role of the victim to determine whether the uh, penalty is carried out. I, I I'm not sure how that applies to this kind of uh, command against enticement to idolatry because you don't have a victim in the same way, and it's a direct assault on Yahweh. Well, somebody would have to decide when and where this is happening, and if it is in fact happening. So there would have to be some sort of adjudication uh, from some authorities in order to uh, pursue uh, these uh, these punishments, right? Yeah, and that's especially true in the second scenario, because in that case, the enticement is secret. Oh, sorry, I'm thinking of the third scenario. Well, the, yeah, in the second scenario, the enticement is secret. But in the third scenario, verse 14 says, you investigate and search out and inquire. There's a process for exposure. There has to be some kind of exposure that happens in the second scenario, too. Uh, so, yeah, there's there would be somebody's making a decision. You know, some prosecutor in some U.S. attorney's office in ancient Israel, some Israelite attorney's office in ancient Israel is making a decision about whether to whether prosecute, or there's a grand jury make a decision about whether they, they have enough evidence to go ahead with it, and also about what, what penalty to pursue, I suppose. It's worth pointing out, isn't it, that um, this death penalty that's um, carried out is it's just some horrific thing, isn't it, which is presumably meant to be deliberately brutalising for the people involved. So it's not as if a law, you know, a hammer can be banged in a courtroom somewhere and then someone is is taken off and kind of executed tidily out of sight uh, or, or or anything like that um the where am where was i looking out you you shall uh versus 10 and 11 you shall stone right. him to death with uh stones your hand shall be the first against him and afterwards the hand of all the people so th this is to be some communal um publicly witnessed um event and and just some horrible event as well i i know someone who witnessed someone being stoned to death before in public and they said it was just, just the most horrific thing that they had ever um sort of seen really and um it, it's it's therefore to be this public reminder of of how horrific um a sin has been committed and presumably to portray in some way how um seriously it's to be taken how awful the consequences will be ultimately if that sin is allowed to go uh unchecked but either way it, it's something that kind of the the relevant parties are to be um involved in which is just a very sobering thing to to remember isn't it yeah, and that deterrent effect is explicitly stated in verse 11. Uh, All Israel will hear and be afraid and never again do such a wicked thing among you. And I think that there's a, a couple of things that even even heighten and, and intensify what you just said, James. Um, the one whose hand is first against him, 
is the relative who has exposed this enticement. This is an enticement that takes place in secret from somebody who is close in relation. Uh, Moses reinforces the intimacy by not just talking about a wife, but a wife you cherish, a friend who is as your own soul, uh, and then you're supposed to act decisively against them. You're the witness of the enticement, so your hand is first against them. But that means, uh, yeah, the that that will that intensifies the the horror of the situation. But it's a horror that, as you say, is necessary for the uh, to cause Israel to fear. It's necessary to purge the wicked from among them, uh, and not just purge this particular um, this particular seducer from among them, but to prevent future enticements to idolatry. Right. And if we sort of approach this passage, having in mind the idea that Israel is just this bloodthirsty society, then, you know, where this sort of thing isn't a big deal, then the whole logic of the passage falls down, doesn't it? Because it, it won't make Israel hear or fear if this is just the standard thing that these barbaric folks carry out. And in, in fact, you know, the prohibition in verse nine, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, etc. You shall not spare him. Surely is written precisely because that will be the natural impulse, you know, to yield to him, to have pity um, to him. Perhaps he's sort of repentant after the um, event or something. And and so it's the whole logic of the thing seems predicated on the, the fact that this isn't what anyone kind of naturally wants to do in, in the situation. Um. Uh- even so, this is just this is all broad brush kind of of law. This would still have to be in you'd still have to inquire into this and investigate this because I mean it doesn't take much to think about how uh, someone could use this as a way of revenge or rivalry against someone in their family. Um, well, you know how this works uh, in in the church is people will accuse other people of things that they did not do because of all sorts of nefarious motivations. It happens in our culture all the time. So um, even though there's nothing said here about an investigation, uh, surely uh, priests and elders would have to look into this and make sure that this is not just a personal spat between uh, two friends or between a father and and his son or whatever, Surely that would have to happen because you can't just come and say, you know, my brother told me to worship uh, Baal, uh, so let's kill him. Well, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait a minute. Let's look into this a little bit and talk about this some more. Um, so I think all of these laws, all these laws require adjudication. I think we need to just remember that. I think it's important, especially since we're talking about go. We remember we went into Deuteronomy thinking about how the law applies to us and what we should do in modern situations, and an elder should be reading the law and reflecting on it. This is true for all law in the Bible. Is it all requires human investigation and interpretation and application? Um, it, it's it, it just can't be woodenly applied without discernment, without wisdom. A very natural um, connection with that would be the story of the accusation of Naboth, um, where such an accusation is brought against him under the instigation of Jezebel, and he's put to death um, 
unjustly on false testimony. And clearly, there was a failure to um, search out the truth of the matter in that instance. We could perhaps think of the way in which Israel is a united people. And so the actions of members of the um, congregation have implications for the whole body of people. Now, our modern societies do not have that same degree of unity. And in many ways, liberal society is the um, emptying out of the unity in the common life and worship that formerly existed at the heart of our societies. And we're very much anomalous in that respect. When we're thinking about the story of Israel, we can see on several occasions that the sins of particular individuals had reverberating effects for the whole of the group of people, whether it's someone like Achan, whether it's situations in the wilderness and numbers where the sins of particular persons had to be um, arrested by um, actions of the Levites and others in order to prevent the whole congregation from suffering as a result. The adjudication of situations of murder we'll see later on involve uh, protection of the congregation from the consequences of the unjust spilling of blood. And in these situations, the um, idolatry or the um, apostasy of one particular person or city will have a consequence for all that needs to be addressed. Now, this may not be the case in our modern societies to the same degree. We're far more separate. Our union is far looser. But within the church, this is clearly still the case. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we see the way that Paul talks about a little leaven leveling, leavening the whole lump. The sin of one member of the congregation can have implications for the whole congregation. And the pride of a congregation that won't deal with sin in their midst and will tolerate and fail to deal with the evil person is one that draws upon the principles that we find here. And so when Paul refers at the end of that chapter to the judgments upon the apostate and the person who leads away from uh, leads people away from the Lord. He's drawing this specific um, Old Testament case, and he's drawing its application for the life of the church, which continues even if we're not executing people. Excommunication is the appropriate way of dealing with such cases of apostasy and leading other people astray, or signal sins within the life of the church that will lead to the judgment of all. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.